This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. It's Friday, October 20th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Joe Biden gave a primetime address to the nation speaking about Israel, but not just Israel, Ukraine also, linking the righteousness of each cause of each American ally in each conflict. But there are differences, of course, which Biden went out of his way to recognize. The aggressor in Ukraine is Putin. Repel the aggressor they must. The attacker in Gaza is Hamas. But to go forward to root out Hamas necessarily puts civilians in harm's way. And Biden did not ignore this. Like so many other, I'm heartbroken by the tragic loss of Palestinian life, including the explosion at the hospital in Gaza, which was not done by the Israelis. We mourn every innocent life lost. We can't ignore humanity of innocent Palestinians who only want to live in peace and have an opportunity. Over the last few days, Biden has given speeches about the conflict in Israel that have been hailed as some of the best of his career. And not because they included zero hiccups or forgotten anecdotes. I was, uh, I was going to play one such instant, but I just don't want to diminish him or the moment. That's not the point. But diminishing Biden is, of course, the stock and trade of conservative media, much of conservative media. I was watching some Fox and Brit Hume and others said, actually, that was an excellent speech. You won't get that from Janine Pirro, Charlie Kirk and the like. Okay, but I put my finger on another form of diminishment. We take these words for granted, which is different from taking his eloquence for granted. We don't. It's sometimes uh, miraculous when he gets through a teleprompter read without kerfuffles or mistakes. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sincerely expressed sentiment. So yeah, Joe Biden pledged allegiance to Israel. And yeah, he said some things, but also did some things to recognize the vulnerability of regular Palestinians. Okay, that's what you'd expect, right? I don't know, because it is instructive to hear how all of that, which I think seemed maybe pretty anodyne to the American audience, how that sounded to Israeli ears. I've been listening to the Times of Israel daily podcast. It's excellent. But yesterday, the Times of Israel was thoroughly documenting all the attempts by Israeli politicians to punish dissent. And to their credit, they were aggrieved that some opportunistic Israelis would violate principles of free speech. So they're not hardliners. They definitely want to beat Hamas. I think they have excellent reporters who do their best to bring accurate information that we wouldn't otherwise hear. Okay, that's the endorsement. Here's the specifics. Correspondent Berenit Gorin talked about the impact of the Biden speeches, calling listeners' attention to moments that I actually heard because I listened to all the Biden speeches, but I didn't even notice, like this. For him to give us an advice and say, 
don't be ruled by your fears and angers and 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 wish for revenge we had that feeling after 9-11 and we made mistakes i thought that was such an important message to give israelis Gorin went on to frame israel as something of the 51st state a status she didn't reject going so far as to say this of president biden we are somewhat run right now by the american president more than we are run by our own government which is a good thing as it happens i think but it still needs to be said maybe it needs to be said more here and i'm sure biden's critics from the left will call him soft but if any so-called friend of israel thinks biden is not a friend of israel well i guess you could argue you're right The Israelis see him as much more than a friend. They see him as a leader. As you heard, they see him as their leader, and they like it. On the show today, examining the plight of Palestinians through a U.S. concept of ethnic identity. But first, most of us think the ocean has some distant power that really only affects our lives a week, a year on vacation, or maybe more often if we're fisher folk. Oh, not so, says my next guest. She's Helen Cheresky, and in her new book, The Blue Machine, How the Ocean Works, Cheresky makes the case that the ocean is much more present in our lives than we think. The disconnect is a problem of perception. I'll get her to explain that. Also, you're going to be surprised about how much we talk about, well, excrement. Seriously, Helen Cheresky, up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. The ocean is, well, the analogies and the metaphors just thrust themselves upon you. It is a great engine. It breathes. It is the blue machine, as per the framing of Helen Chersky. How the Ocean Works is the subtitle of the blue machine. 
and Helen Chersky, oceanographer, but really scientist and just interesting, fascinating person, joins me now. And I think I've misidentified you, right? You're not a proper oceanographer, are you? Well, I'm so I'm a physicist. I'm trained as a physicist and I use that physics to study the ocean. So I'm a bit hard to label. But then actually that's true for a lot of people who work on the ocean because we all come at it from chemistry or biology or somewhere else. And then we sort of find ourselves in the world of the ocean and then no one knows what we're called anymore. So was it then as a physicist that led you to the analogy and to explaining it to the public as a machine? Do you think that that's why that framing appealed to you? Well, yes, it's because I think a mach- we know machines work in the sense of they do things and we have this perception of, engine, of, of machines as sort of physical objects that push things around. But when we think about the ocean, we often think of it as a big kind of empty pond where it's got some fish swimming in it. And so, well, I think part of the reason I wrote the book is that we don't really have a relationship with the ocean. It's a kind of distant thing. It's like that thing over there that it's, you know, if we want to be poetic about voids and uncertainties and mysteries, we can sort of point at the ocean and go, oh, yes. there it is is one of the words that's always associated with it vast yeah the vastness (laughs) is space in the ocean vast although i do have to say that that is probably the word my editor crossed out more than any (laughs) other so i am not free of that bias um but but it's a sort of very convenient big sort of mysterious thing and and actually it's it's too important for that and it's too interesting. And so I think we have to understand it only gets better if you know about it. And that involves understanding what's happening under the surface. I mean, humans get carried around by it, but we only see the top. And then sometimes weird things happen. You know, there's like an algal bloom or there's a whole load of jellyfish and we go, oh, look, there's a load of jellyfish. And actually the engine underneath has turned in a way that produced that and we're just seeing the consequences. And I think once you start to see it like that, you have a different relationship with it. Once you start to see how it affect, it's affected, you know, histories and civilizations and the outcomes of battles. And it, we, you know, it's really been there in the background of everything we have learned about our planet and how, it, how it's operated. And um, then you start to go, actually, this is something that's worth this. this it's, it's not just a nice thing to look at. It's the thing that's turning behind the scenes that makes everything livable. And I think that's when you get better, perhaps, at caring about it. I do think I do think that there is a realm of knowledge that acknowledges that and celebrates it and is very fascinated with it. And people will write about naval histories and maritime battles, the things that happen on the surface. But what your book does uh, in actuality and in symbolically is takes us below the surface. So just as someone would be able to write a history of the world based on whoever controls the seas control the world, I've read that book and interviewed that author and there are many different versions. You're trying to say, yes, but don't just think of the seas in the first uh, few uh, meters of the sea, go under. So what would be a case uh, where you could make that the vastness of the sea and the things that's going on way beneath the sea are influencing the world and history as we know it? Well, the most obvious example, perhaps, is the strip of ocean just down the side of Chile, all the way, that sort of thin, Chile is a long, thin country, and if you think the strip of ocean next to it is kind of a long, thin place, and it's a tiny part of the global ocean, and yet, even today, 20% of the entire world's fish catch comes from this very narrow strip of ocean, and in the past, it's been even higher, it's been 40% back in the 60s, so it's this very strange bit of ocean where it's 
produces vast quantities of fish. And um, it also has produced vast quantities of bird poo, guano. There are islands there that have, um, you know, they, when they were found by Europeans, of course, they were already known by the indigenous population. You know, there are 30 metres of, of bird poo just piled up, this kind of white, acrid stuff. And um, so the fish matter, because they were, you know, that was a big trading. You know, people obviously went to once they found the fish, they fished them out and they sold them to everyone. They turned them into fish meal, which was sold around the world as a protein source. So actually, um, in you know a couple of hundred years ago, uh, fish that were ground up from that narrow current, they fed British pigs. Um, and after the Second World War, the reason we continue to have lots of bacon in this country is because we were feeding them fish from Chile. So there's enormous, there's a huge trade that was going on. But even before that, there were wars fought over the bird poop because because sure. um, Franklin, Franklin Pierce signed the uh, the Guano Island Act, yeah. <laughs> thus introducing into the world a land grab of, but it wasn't land, it was a bird poo grab and basically breathing into existence, let us now fight bloody battles over bird poo. But it was yeah, important. It is, it's an astonishing piece of legislation. It basically says any US citizen is allowed, and it might still be part of law in your country, I'm not sure, you know, that they are allowed, if they find some unoccupied bird poo island, they're allowed to take possession of it for the United States. Um, so, that, so there's these two things coming out of this tiny strip of ocean that, that clearly matter, and wars were fought over that. You know, th this was needed for explosives. So you, ne you needed guano before the Harbour Bosch process and modern production of um, nitrogen compounds. Um, so all these fantastically important things were coming there, so a little strip of ocean. And the reason they were there is that in the ocean, there's this massive paradox. You know, on the surface of it, there shouldn't be any life in the ocean. And that's because the, the ocean has this lid, this kind of warm layer that sits on the top and down beneath is cold water. And because of the way, because things tend to sink, the nutrients are all down in the cold water and the sunlight's all warming that top layer. And it's, it stops the sunlight getting to the nutrients. It's, it's a lid. So the only places where you've got lots of life in the ocean are where you break that paradox. And in this place off the coast of Chile, um, you know, that the wind and the spin of the earth push that surface warm lid away, allow the cold water to come to the surface. And that's why you get all this sort of geopolitics and trade and this enormous interest in this tiny, thin area. And actually, so, so that's why that's why the fish are there. That's why there's a load of fish is because the, the cold water can come up. And the reason the bird poo is there is not just that there's loads of fish which feeds the birds, it's that the cold water stops it raining. And so it doesn't wash away because obviously Europe's got loads of bird poo. I mean, why don't we just go after our own bird poo? And, and it doesn't happen. <laughs> we really because, have the superior bird poo. <laughs> yeah, similar amount of poo per bird. Yeah. What's wrong with all these European birds? So get you know, come on, get your act together. And and it's so the so the ocean that the physicality of the ocean is generating this thing, and it happens there and not in other places. And as a result, you know. Bolivia and Ecuador have a war, which means that Bolivia ends up without a coastline. You know, you have the you have these sort of real tangible effects in the real world. But it's not just because the fish happen to be there. It's because that is a, a very particular place where the ocean engine is doing something very specific. And then that drives what humans do in response at the surface. Um, I was listening to one of the podcasts that you were hosting and you're talking to some fish experts and I think the orange ruffy lives deep, deep beneath the sea and could live up to 150 years. Is there something about the great depths of the ocean that lends itself to this extended time frame? 
Yes, there are two things. One of them is the cold, actually. So things live more slowly in the cold. Enzymes function more slowly. And so, right. and in cold water, you get this thing called gigantism, actually, in the polar regions where things just get bigger because they're, they're kind of slow and cold and, and they're a bit bigger. So so the first thing is that in cold water, things just live more slowly. And actually, the Greenland shark, which which I also write about, I mean, they, that, that thing can live till 450 years old. It doesn't reach sexual maturity until it's 150. So yeah. these are very, very slow creatures. And that's because of the cold. And then the Greenland shark is still a predator, so it has to surprise its prey. Is it always playing the long game given its time horizon? Well, what's amazing about the Greenland shark is that I even though Greenland this shark, thing yeah. swims, at, you know, a couple of centimeters per second, it's basically a baggy jumper pretending to be a shark. It's incredibly slow, um, and yet it's an ambush predator. Um, and so it's been found with inside it, you know, bits of uh, seal and fish that swim far more quickly than it. So it, it's thought that it kind of just slides through the water in the dark and then it must be able to bite quickly enough to get a seal, at least one bite. Uh, and, and it clearly feeds itself. Um, but it's, 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 uh, it's, it's hard to catch it doing it because they, they move so slow. And most of them are blind, actually. Most of them have, they do have eyes, but most of them have a parasitic worm in one or both eyes, which renders them blind. Of so all the ways for a seal to go, he must get, I mean, it's terrible yeah. for the seal and his family, <laughs> but if he's taken by the shark, it's just so embarrassing. Yeah, by the baggy well, jumper I mean, of a predator. <laughs> It's kind of, nature's a bit like that though. So I have I've filmed with ambush predators for the BBC with the alligators in Florida, which I don't recommend. That I mean, you know. And the thing I noticed about the thing about alligators is that you because the thing because of course I had to film the face the camera, so the alligators were behind me. And every time I turned around, they were closer, and I never saw them move. And actually, that's quite common in nature in the Arctic, up in the sea ice near the North Pole, where I've I've done research. That's what it's like. Um, the ice, you never see the ice move, but every morning when you get up, it looks different. And so there's this real, like, we assume that things should happen on our time scale, that if it doesn't happen within an hour, it sort of doesn't matter. And actually quite a lot of nature operates just on different time scales that are much faster or much slower. And, and so you kind of have to pay attention to see them. Well, you got your start filming things in slow motion, right? Yes, yeah. So high speed photography, that was where I'm at my physics um, master's degree and then my PhD were using high speed photography to watch explosions. And I was never really that interested in the explosions. But what happens before an explosion is really interesting. And so I, I was building experiments that let me build, let me follow things that were um, just too small and too fast to see with the naked eye. But they're happening right in front of you. I mean, if it's an explosive, hopefully not too close right in front of you um but but you can you know there's this world where because we blink we think the world we think they're very fast but actually we're very slow because if you think about how complicated the human body is you know just for you to you know waggle your fingers you've got all these nerve signals have to come and go your muscles have to contract quite a lot of things have to happen so and we're very complicated you know trillions of cells and so relatively speaking we're quite slow and the world is just getting on with it not waiting for us and so i was studying the physics of that world i do find that i don't know if it's the word is ironic but just so interesting that you get your start in science um crafting your expertise around tiny things that move so quickly uh, the human eye can't even see them. And now you've moved on to ocean, literally the va most vast, let's use the word, thing on Earth. And the movements are often quite literally glacial. 
<laughs> uh, well, no one said it had to be logical, right? Although the thing, the th one of the things about the ocean... Well, maybe you're just drawn to extremes in all forms. Well, actually, so one of the things about the ocean engine, though, is is the, one of the reasons to, it's hard to see is that things happen very slowly and very fast. Like, yes. it's like an engine that's got sort of layers, not in space, but you can look at the same bit of ocean and depending on the time scale and the size scale you're looking, it's doing different things, but it's doing all of them. So, so what I actually study now are, are the breaking waves and bubbles at the surface of the ocean because that's the ocean taking a deep breath in a storm that those bubbles influence that you know they help the ocean take a deep breath and they're changing very quickly you know seafarers have looked out at stormy seas for centuries but what's going on just a meter beneath the surface where that breathing process is going on it's really quick it's in a really awkward position because you know it's a big storm and the whole sea surface is going up and down by 10 meters and you want to look in the top meter um, and so these very fast processes are important and so you're right that there is this weird thing that I the ocean is doing both those things it's got these processes that are happening incredibly quickly but they when they all add up they have an influence on a thing the size of a planet but isn't that brilliant right that's the fun of it you're you have quite an expertise in bubbles do you not yeah, bubble physicist is a real job. How many people have it? <laughs> you and who else? Um, well, there are there are different flavors of bubble physicists. So uh -huh. there's the ocean one. The ocean one's a few. There are medical bubbles. Lots of people study them. Um, people use bubbles in industry for quite a lot of things. You know, so so champagne bubbles. I have yes. I have met and interviewed champagne bubble researchers who have a very nice life. It is not often that I go to. In fact, never. It's only in this one case. Went to this guy's lab, and he was genuinely funded by Moe and Shandon, and his lab was full of empty champagne bottles because of course he had to do his research on the proper champagne <laughs> So, so actually, so bubble physicists do pop up in in a, in some unexpected if you places. Will, yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but then they're they're interesting because they're a mixture of a gas and a liquid, and gas and gases and liquids try very hard not to mix. And when you force them, you create a bubble, which a bubbly mixture does something that neither or a gas or a liquid does. And so it's this it's this interesting extra thing that the world can play with. So yeah. Is foam the plural of bubble? <laughs> now that is a very deep and meaningful scientific question um well let me ask you this way at what point does do bubbles uh, accumulate into such a amount of foam that you lose interest in them uh yeah um i so for the ocean i'm interested until the point where they pop basically because mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. they pop they spit so you know you hold a glass of champagne or something just underneath your nose you'll feel it spit you'll feel little tiny particles going in your nose because as the bubbles burst they spit tiny particles upwards and actually that happens in the ocean as well and the little tiny particles of salt and other things they spit upwards are important for cloud formation uh, and how light travels through the atmosphere so so i guess i'm interested until they burst and then um yeah maybe but but if there's lots of them together it's not as the bursting isn't as interesting do so, all bubbles ultimately burst uh, except the ones that dissolve. So do, does it annoy you when, in economic terms, people describe uh, an industry as, oh, that's a bubble, knowing, as you know, that not all bubbles burst, some can just dissipate? Oh, well, I've had to get over that. I sometimes get emails from people telling me the universe is made of 27 cosmic bubbles. And it's always 20, it's always some very specific number like 27. Yeah. And, you know, the great thing, I guess the thing is to embrace it because bubbles are interesting. People know they're interesting and everyone's just trying to hop on our interesting bandwagon. But I would like it pointed out that the bubble physicists were there first. Are there sufficient amounts of fish in the ocean to sustain us at our current rates? No. And um, 
there's this really interesting piece of science that was done a, a couple of years ago and people have sort of known it for a long time you know we hear about overfishing a lot but it's really hard to get a, a sort of picture of what that means really um and there was a really there's been this idea around for a long time that um if you add up the amount of living things in the ocean that are between let's say one gram and 10 grams you have some number and then if you look at the amount between 10 grams and 100 grams it's the same number so you've got 10 times fewer but that each one of them is 10 times bigger and it's the mm. same number they, and they, so sorry to interrupt is there some sort of explanation they there's this uh, tendency to achieve the same amount of biomass is this called something um, I don't think it's got a name. There's a 2021 paper that basically did... A, so that we're still at the surveying stage of yeah. finding that this is true rather than really having hardcore reasons for it to be happening. But this is true all the way down to things the size of viruses. So first of all, that means that 60% of what's alive in the ocean, we can't even see. They're just tiny things that are floating around with the water. It's not all about the dolphins. So this is, it's true all the way down. And if you go back, you know, 150 years, it was true all the way up to everything the size of whales, that every size class had the same amount of stuff in it, living wow. stuff. And then you look at it now, and what you can see is that the top part of it is almost completely lopped off. So in that top size category where whales are, you're down at 5% of where everything else is. And then you go a little bit smaller and you're down at 20%, you know. So so basically, the more visible it is to a human, the less of it there is in the ocean. And so just as a very simple measure of how much we've overfished, because of course an ecosystem needs everything on all scales, right? It's all, it's not just what, it's not about one living thing. The whole thing fits together. All big things need the small things and the small things need the big things. And so if you lop off the big end, which is pretty much what we've done with overfishing, you just you you cut a mechanism out of ecosystems that those bigger creatures are distributing nutrients around the ocean. So sharks, for example, will swim over a reef and poo more poo, and they fertilise the reef. You know they 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 eat fish out in the open ocean. They swim into the reef to rest or to breed or whatever, and they poo and they fertilise the coral reef. So they're moving nutrients around. It's not just oh dear there are no big pretty animals. It's that you're changing the structure of the ecosystem, and that's the problem with overfishing. It's 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 not just that, oh dear, there are no fish. It's that you've removed a part of the biological part of the engine. And yeah. and it's it's hard for nature to replace that on short timescales. So hearing this, hearing uh, what you're saying about overfishing, and I listen to the Ocean Matters podcast, it frequently comes up that we know more and more about the state of our oceans. This isn't good news, but you and your guests come back to the idea that, you know, since knowledge is power, this doesn't mean we should despair. And frequently on the show, it seems to me that the 90s were a point where we were ignorant and at our worst. So we've gotten past that point. We know there are problems. We actually have solutions, even if we if haven't implemented them. What else keeps you from very much despairing? Um, so what I see at the moment, so you, you are absolutely right that knowledge about the ocean is what allows us to work out what to do next because otherwise we're just kind of helpless and we are not helpless we do know what to do we still have more to learn the thing that gives me optimism actually is that the ocean is now a topic of conversation and 10 years ago it was just a weird place where you sent deep sea people who wanted to go to the bottom <laughs> of the challenger deep right or it was yeah, where yeah. the monsters lived and now um there's far more interest there's far more um 
people have worked out they don't really know what it is but they sort of know it's important like just today lunchtime today i spoke to a group of uh, members of parliament in westminster here in london talking to them about the ocean and they wouldn't have asked those questions 10 years ago or 20 years ago were they from from all parties they were actually. It was quite interesting. They were yeah. all um, they were all sort of taking the mick out of each other and who'd yeah. voted on what. I find that environmentalism, especially in European countries, isn't so partisan as it is here. This uh, I think maybe the Republican Party in the United States has, to some extent, moved past the flat-out denialism, but we don't see this sentiment uh, played out in Europe as a whole. Even the more conservative parties take this very seriously. Yeah, well, I mean, it is, it's kind of an existential threat. If you want to have an economy in some number of years' time, you'd better have a functioning planet because it's our life support system. I know you interviewed Sylvia Earle, uh, perhaps the w- one of the great marine uh, scientists, the first person to walk solo on the bottom of the sea. Her nickname, her sobriquet is her deepness. If you were asked to invent one, such a title for yourself, what might it be? What should we call you? I've never thought about that, but could I be her bubbleness? Yes! The, the be-bubbled Helen Chersky. She is the author of The Blue Machine, How the Ocean Works. She is one of the presenters of the Fully Charged Show. She's been a science columnist for the Wall Street Journal since 2017, author of Storm in a Teacup, The Physics of Everyday Life, and now, of course, The Blue Machine. If she were named like an Icelandic volcano, it would be C6, but her last name is C-Z-E-R-S-K-I Chersky. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now the spiel. The analysis of why media or Americans or America is more sympathetic to Israelis killed by terrorists than Palestinians killed by Israelis has some explanations that are a lot better than others. Americans identify with Israelis. Americans fear Muslims. The death tolls are disproportionate. The terrorist attacks remind Americans of the terrorist attacks on America. But another frequent explanation for the general sympathies that lie more with the Israelis, was expressed on Chicago's WGN radio by Brandon Pope, a former anchor on CW26 Chicago and current podcast host for public broadcaster WBEZ. They're seeing up close what America values most. America values war. America values violence. They, They value the oppression of black and brown bodies above all. To be clear what Pope was saying, host John Williams drilled down. Here's the image that came to my mind. If the images we were seeing on our screens were of people whose skin color was lighter, our reaction would have been quicker and more visceral. That's that's what I was pulling from that. Basically, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that, you know, the people, when we saw the attacks that happened 
by Hamas on Israel, disgusting attacks that should be condemned by all. Um, you know, the sympathy train was rightfully there. However, it just was in juxtaposition and complete just like imbalance to everything that's happened with in, in the past. You hear this sentiment all the time. Activist Bree Newsom, who gained fame for taking the Confederate flag down from the South Carolina State House, told her half million Twitter ex followers, Palestinians get grouped together as Muslims is an appeal to Western Islamophobia and to stereotype them as faceless brown people hostile to white Christian civilization. She also added, and this isn't really to the point, but tells you where she's coming from, because the ruling class only pretends to care about hostages and civilian deaths in the course of war profiteering. The student newspaper of USC, the Daily Trojan, argues about the Palestinians, quote, when the media tells lies and lets brown people die, we must make our own media. It would seem that the Daily Trojan's prophylaxis for misinformation is simply to redefine misinformation. On the left, it has become a doctrine to see the oppressed peoples of the world interlocked with each other in a struggle against the powerful. The powerful are seen as colonizers who are white, and those being victimized, colonized, or oppressed are portrayed as black and brown. A lot of times it's true. In the context of Jews in Israel, it's all just really confusing. Are Jews even white? In America today, they have such status, but the very origins of the term anti-Semitic as synonym for anti-Jewish traced to Germany, shock, where anti-Semitism was not a caution against prejudice, but a bigoted call to action. Wilhelm Marr, full name Frederick Wilhelm Adolf Marr, founded the Anti-Semitin Liga, the League of Anti-Semites. It was the first German organization committed specifically to combating the threat to Germany and German culture posed by the Jews and advocating their forced removal from the country because they were not of the country. Their roots were said to be in the areas of Semitic-speaking people, the theory went. Where is that? Well, anti-Semitic or Semitic at all, originally referred to the language group that includes Aramaic, Hebrew, and Arabic. When Yasser Arafat was asked about anti-Semitism, he would always laugh at the question as preposterous, saying, I'm a Semite, and he had a point. But my point is, there is no prominent distinction in the, quote, brown people status of Palestinians versus Jews. There's no historical racial difference between them that they really understood. Ethnic, yes. Maybe racial, no. They are distinct but closely tied. There are no ethnic hierarchies of skin color. The majority of Israelis are not Jews of European descent. They are Sephardic or Mizrahi Jews which would come from Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, many from Africa, add in Ethiopian Jews and Jews from other places where their skin tone, their coloring are all but indistinguishable from Palestinians. In fact, according to a 2015 Haaretz article, Blood Brothers, Palestinian and Jews share genetic roots. Jews break down into three genetic groups, all of which have Middle Eastern origins, which are shared with the Palestinians and the Druze. But it's not just genetically it's visually have you seen a picture 
of dead or kidnapped Israelis who look like Norwegians or the Pennsylvania Dutch? Or do this, Google Palestinian businesswoman as a phrase, Google Israeli businesswoman as a phrase, and then do a close-up of their faces. Ask a friend or loved one, which one's Jewish and which one's Palestinian? Or don't, because it's pretty weird and vaguely Aryan and seems like something Goebbels would have done. But that's kind of my point. The obsessiveness over skin tone or what is the favored or disfavored ethnicity doesn't just not elevate us. It's, it's not accurate. If most U.S. viewers see a woman in a headscarf wailing in agony with her hands reaching towards the heavens, I don't think that they would have any more or less sympathy based on her identifiable characteristics. They're not prejudiced against the brown person in that case. If a chiron on the screen identifies the woman as Jewish victim of terrorist, that might cause more sympathy than Palestinian mother grieving child killed in bombing. But it's not the coloring, it's not the ethnicity, it's not the present or lack of brownness or any other identifiable outward characteristic that leads to that sympathy. Many people in the U.S. do care about the Palestinian pain more than they do about the Israeli pain. Because to many in the U.S., especially young people, Palestinians are seen as the underdog and Israel as the powerful. Full stop, but not full stop, also linking in the racial component that I've documented. But a lot of the U.S. public responds to Israeli pain more because Israel is seen as more of in the club of Western democracies. It is a democracy. It's not necessarily Western. It reminds them more of a European country. It's not particularly beloved by European countries. It's a contradiction. And then there's this phrase, Judeo-Christian values. But I will concede that the vast majority of Christians in America are more likely to have perhaps unexamined sympathies for the first half, the first clause of that hyphenated phrase, Judeo-Christian especially as compared to a Muslim. But the Deo at the end of Jew, making it the Judeo, does not go all the way for all Christians in making them forget that Jews are different from they are. White supremacy, loathing of brown people, it's become a mantra, and it's almost impossible to prove when it happens, and sometimes it does happen. But if there was ever a set of circumstances that challenges that, it would be Israel and Gaza. There are real reasons to be sympathetic to each set of victims. And I do acknowledge, yeah, I do think if there were pale, freckled redheads bleeding in the streets of Gaza, as there were with, say, the Irish Troubles on a much smaller scale, it is likely some Americans who aren't sympathetic to the current Palestinians would be more sympathetic. Yes. But just as it would be quite insane then to have called the conflict between the British and the Irish a struggle between brown people and white people, it is Odd and misleading to say that one side of this conflict has a significantly different ethnicity or skin tone from the other. It's facile, and it says more about the priors of the person advancing the argument than the specific circumstance of this particular conflict. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is chief Ivy abatement officer and also Lanternfly Executioner of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Thanks for listening.